Welcome to this week's episode of Review Crew. Uh, it's where no pros editors, writers meet to chat about the shows they've seen this week. It's a partner of the Review Rundown, which you can find on the site, and this will show up in your podcast feed in the next day or two. We're going to kick it off with our Chicago curator. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick McLean. And our East Coast curator at large. Hey, everyone. It's Blake Weil. And I'm your host for today, Kevin Gossett, the LA Reviews Editor. Um, and actually, um, Blake, pause, guys. You're not unmuted in the Discord. Oh, wait. Yes, you are. Sorry. It's professionalism. Noah, keep that in there. I want a record of Blake <laughs> screwing up a perfectly good intro for it's, everybody. Oh, God damn it. I'm sorry. Once more from. No, no, no. Let's, let's just keep going. Yeah. <laughs> I nailed it once. I can't. I can't nail it twice in a row. All right, uh, Blake, we're going to kick it off today with you. Um, I think you've been having some fun on the East Coast, so fill us in. Sure thing. So I'm I'm actually going to be talking about two shows tonight. Um, one fantastic if imperfect, and one imperfect if not fan if not fantastic. So so let's let's start with the negative, I'm afraid, and uh, I'm going to jump into Halloween Nights at Eastern State Penitentiary. So first things first, I just want to clarify that I, I don't want to bully this show. I am not here to put it down. I think that it's really admirable what they're doing, trying to do something a little bit newer, a little bit more immersive, a little bit more welcoming. Uh, as opposed to their usual incredibly intense, incredibly scary terror behind the walls, which sadly I never got to experience. And I love intense, scary haunted houses. But it was it was nice to see a wide variety of people show up for this new Halloween Nights event, which is functionally sort of a big Halloween carnival. You've got eight or so major attractions across the event, or so the website claims, but we'll get to that. Uh, a few of which are going to be scary. You know, we've got, depending on how you count it, between two and four haunted mazes, as you call them on the West Coast, or haunted houses, as we'd call them on the East. But between those, you've also got psychedelic immersive kaleidoscope tunnels and multiple themed cocktail experiences and a live dance performance by the skeleton crew, a bunch of pretty good dancers in, you know, glow-in-the-dark skeleton costumes, kind of hearkening back to that old, like, silly symphonies graveyard dance feel, only with modern hip-hop. So, all in all, you've got a lot of attractions, and I, I appreciate that. I really do. Where the evening starts to fall a little bit short for me is that they all really feel in competition with one another um all save one which i'm going to end on for this are pretty sparse the haunted mazes are pretty bog standard you know people jumping out saying boo occasionally they've got a nice trick like a swirling tunnel or a 3d maze or shifting floor panels you know that are holdovers from when it was a more elaborate haunted house and they just still have those props in storage but for the most part they just seemed a little bit uninspired um a little bit hard to follow especially in some of the ones that claimed to be a little bit more plot heavy such as the take 13 haunted Hollywood attraction, which was just kind of incomprehensible um, from a quick walkthrough. The beer garden's pretty pleasant, but, you know, you're also paying, you know, by the time you're drinking around, in, because you need the VIP pass to get into them, around 60 bucks to go to the event. So I, I'm not really sure that I can recommend there. Can well, you... I wonder. Well, I I wonder, Blake, is the issue because you mentioned that this is a more toned down version of this experience out there this year. How much does do you feel like that is maybe contributing this that this pivot to make it, for lack of a better term, more fa family friendly, has kind of deflated the experience that maybe you were expecting to have. 
So that's kind of an interesting question because I, you know, as, as a lot of people know, I'm really not against family friendly. I personally love kind of lighter immersive stuff. I just also happen to love scarier haunts. I, I think the trouble they're really running into here is that it's sort of this neither fish nor fowl in between that it, it hasn't really become family friendly yet. Uh, the experiences that you could go to if you're not looking for horror are pretty scarce in terms of actual content within them. But the horror experiences have been sort of diminished by virtue of resources being diverted into these more tame attractions. And so really, I think that we might just be looking at a pilot program this year in which we're going to see which of these attractions worked the best and build that out into a full event. And there was one of them that worked really spectacularly, which was the speakeasy at Al Capone's cell, which was sort of an immersive cocktail bar experience. You could go into some of the historic actual cells surrounding Al Capone's actual cell and pop in to play blackjack with someone as the ghost of a magician from the 20s all done up. Or you could get your fortune read, or you could talk to flappers who would also rotate on and off of a main stage doing sort of postmodern jukebox style jazz arrangements of pop hits. And that was really fun. They managed to tie in the history of the place. It managed to retain kind of a level of good taste that I think they're really trying to do here. I think they liked Eastern State Penitentiary's big, you know, uh, terror behind the walls event. I think everyone loved it. I, I think the problem really came that it it wasn't necessarily in the best of taste doing that in an actual historic prison, especially as we're sort of reevaluating the prison system within the U.S. And so this is an attempt to kind of move in a more agreeable direction there. And, and it's an admirable move. I don't want to shoot it down too much. I just think that it's in this sort of awkward growing pains period because it used to be very good at doing extreme horror and now it's trying to figure out how to do something else if that makes sense no that that definitely does and i think it's probably something creators struggle with generally is like how do you kind of split the difference between making something that like appeals to maybe a more limited scope of the people who are into kind of the more extreme horror type stuff and and people who are looking for something else or can they bring their kids to I, I want to go back to that point about having it set in a prison because that is like an interesting venue and it sounds like only the Al Capone cell show even takes advantage of that or so there's, how, does that, how does that work? There's it either work. It works one of three ways. Either you're Al Capone speakeasy and you're really leaning into it and it's, you know, it's working for you. You can feel the prison vibes. The cells provide an interesting structure for more intimate encounters. But then there's sort of, you know, the in-between approach. There was the Tricks and Treats bar, which was not one of the themed cocktail experiences, just a bar you had access to. And that just allowed you some nice intimacy in some of the odd little courtyards of the place. This is not just a prison, it's an enormous historic prison. You know, a, a stone castle fortress in the middle of Pennsylvania dating back to the 1800s. And so just having the space to kind of stand out in the autumn air, drink your bourbon and cider, and they were pouring very strong drinks, which, I mean, definitely helped my evaluation of this bar. But... It was really nice just to be able to sort of engage with that architecture in a more casual way. But then a lot of the attract... And then also things like the kaleidoscope tunnel. You know, it while certainly it was kind of a, a mellow attraction, it was just a sort of abstract projection show on the ceiling. It's a crazy vaulted ceiling of an old historical fortress. It's cool to just engage with that architecture. But then in a lot of the haunted trails... It either just, you know, sort of ignores the architecture in the case of the crypt, where, you know, you're clearly walking past 
prison bars, but they're sort of insistently going, you know, no, no, this is a vampire crypt, except that this is a vampire crypt. Or in the case of something like, I forget what it was called, um, Toxic 3D, let's just say, something along those lines. You know exactly the house I'm talking about if you've been to any multi-house, multi-maze haunted attraction. That one just sort of totally papered over the prison architecture and aesthetic. And and while that was one of the more aesthetically interesting houses, it also kind of did nothing with the prison itself. And so it, it almost left me a little bit on the cold side because it's it's sort of a failure of opportunity. And I think if we're talking about what's in good taste, what's in bad taste, I personally find it, I personally find what's in the poorer taste is just sort of using the prison as a launching point for more general spooks. I think that even if you're doing it for something entertaining, something a little bit lighter, the fact that some of the experience was sort of engaging with this prison and getting a feel for it and touching, even if in a lighter way, on its history, I feel like that lent to my feeling that this is an experience rooted in sense and taste and not an attempt to, in the case of Toxin 3D, literally paper over the history. Yeah, there's there's always such like a, there's always a need for like, time and space when you're thinking about historical context and how you're using those spaces. And I, I think that's just a really good observation in regards to it's it, it, in some aspects, like, you know, if it's Al Capone's secret saloon space, you know, that's, that's something, there's a way to suspend your disbelief. But I think to, and cause I've looked at some of the, like the, photos and like this is like a big old prison like it's sprawling uh and it's got lots of yard space and covers a lot of like land and i think to just yeah to your point blake to like not acknowledge that or not be aware of that or just to disregard it is something because i think maybe what kevin will eventually talk about like you know if you're gonna just paper over something there is there are places that lend it to that but definitely maybe not a prison Something like perhaps a studio backlot, Kevin. Just, just maybe. That's where that's where they uh, they nail what they're trying to do because they are a uh, on a on film sets and film stages, and so that is Halloween Horror Nights at Universal Studios, Hollywood and Orlando. I I live in the West Coast, so I went to the Hollywood one this past weekend, and it is it's what you expect out of Horror Nights. It's these these good sets um, built on on sound stages around the back lots using kind of props and things from, from the universal movies. And um, it's usually based on kind of big IP. So this year, I think they had Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We had Halloween, the haunting of Hill house, the bride of Frankenstein. I'm forgetting one or two more. Um, Beetlejuice. No, we didn't get Beetlejuice. You didn't get Beetlejuice? No. Oh, was that like Orlando only? Yeah, I think it is Orlando only. Oh no, and I heard really that one was fun. Yeah, because I think that that was actually one of the lighter ones. Like, and the, wait, the wait, before, ones are fun. before yeah. we go further, just don't say it a third time because we've said it twice now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we'll stay away from him. Um, yeah, we didn't get that one, which was I think disappointing because I thought they had it. it was like, oh, I so I have a show. cool. Show. I have a question. Having never yeah, been yeah. to either of them it uh this sounds like maybe like a noob type question but like are you really going out to like the back lots that are then during the day being used for filming or is this like that fake back space that like has never been used or is hardly ever used in production of tv shows and movies so this year it was a little bit less i think because of covid restrictions they actually reused some mazes and they didn't use some of the areas they normally use but uh, many of them were built on actual sound stages on the property um some of them are just built in like the the queues for other attractions 
And then they had one that was sort of kind of out in like a weird parking lot area that is not normally used for anything. But the last few years, they've actually had you down on, on the back lot where you kind of have to hike out from the main theme park area. And they've set ones kind of in and around there. They don't usually take advantage of like the actual sets they're on because they're just the facades down there. But you are in kind of like parts of the studio you don't normally go to. Um, we do have the terror tram, which actually takes you out onto some of the sets they've built, which they don't really like take advantage of. But you can take a picture with with Norman Bates in front of the Psycho House. You kind of walk around the Bates Motel. So there's there's things where they it, they bring that in as much as they can um, without kind of disrupting probably whatever like filming is actually going on. On the other hand, if I could, if I had a nickel for every time a guy jumped out at me in the ET Adventure Forest queue. <laughs> <laughs> but did it, smell like, did it smell like pine trees though at least it had that nice pine tree smell or- orlando's um i used to lit i went to school in miami so we used to drive up around halloween for horror nights orlando's is a little mu- a little more what you were speaking to patrick they're certainly large sound stages but they at least haven't been using them since like the Nickelodeon era in any huge capacity. You know, maybe they were filming Double Dare 2000 there once upon a time, but since then, these have been mostly large event space for pop-ups like Horror Nights. Um, And yeah, so Patrick, if you've never been to one, it's, it's a pretty standard haunted maze to they, they walk you through They're They're very high quality because they have that kind of universal budget they can throw at them. And they're cool properties. So if you want to walk around through Haddonfield or through the uh, Leatherface's slaughterhouse, you, you get to do that in, in these kind of high quality sets. Many of the scares are pretty standard. They um, are very loud. There's a flashy strobe light, and then someone kind of sticks their hand in front of you or kind of jumps out at you. They're pretty formulaic. Uh, most of the mazes will follow that. You'll kind of walk through some, some dark halls. People pop out at you. But so they're pretty standard from from year to year in terms of kind of how they try to scare you. So what I wrote about in the rundown this year is they there were two that I felt actually tried to do something a little bit different. They're still ultimately kind of held to, I think, what people expect out of Horror Nights at this point, which is what I just described. But I really like the um, Bride of Frankenstein Lives, which I think actually takes it. It's an original story that takes place after the movie The Bride of Frankenstein because the creator felt like the bride does not get her due in that movie. She's, and I think he mentioned that she was in it for like four or five minutes and then goes away. So this, this takes place after that. And she's trying to rescue Frankenstein after the building comes down around them. Um, and, and, and she's trying to rescue Dr. Frankenstein, not. No, no. She's trying to rescue Frankenstein's monster. Got it. Got it. Just wanted them to clarify. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, then she, throughout the, like it tells these, like this story in different scenes where it's like, there's like a scare scene or something happening and then it puts up like this like essentially giant like mural in the hallway as you kind of transition between scenes that tells her story so she starts off trying to save frankenstein and then she runs into um some of some vampires basically and then becomes a vampire hunter and uses their blood to bring frankenstein's monster back by the end and it's just like a cool original story where they actually it felt like they were trying to do something different with it and and focusing on I think a pretty popular universal monster and giving her kind of this like facelift redo as they turn her into a badass vampire hunter with a cool costume. Can I go on? I know we're having a slightly more casual evening tonight. Can I go on a half second tangent about the Bride yeah, of Frankenstein? Of course. I am half, half a second. Yeah. I'm I am at the clock. super excited and like heart warmed to hear that we're giving the Bride of Frankenstein a happy ending through her haunted house. There is this enormous queer affection for Bride of Frankenstein as a film. It's loaded with subtext, and there have been, like, art house movies about its creation. Um, If you ever saw, um, not super art house, but still great, if you ever saw Gods and Monsters with Brendan Fraser and Ian McKellen, like... The fact that we're revisiting this theme, just like, oh, that sounds great. I'm really sad I missed that one. Uh, And I will say, in defense of the movie, and if you guys have read Mary Shelley's book or remember it better, correct me, but I do feel like what ultimately is the Bride of 
monster, the creature, has a very small part in the book as well. So it's not necessarily, this is maybe a rare opportunity to defend Hollywood filmmaking that, no, they didn't kind of drop the ball there. I do feel like that's kind of like only in the last fourth of the book. But And this has been the Literary Review Corner. <laughs> now back to your regularly scheduled so, um, review crew. Kevin, you mentioned COVID protocol. And yes. one of the things I didn't see you mention in your review or hear you mention tonight is the scare zones. So I know they've put up, you know, the clear vinyl sheeting to try to keep the actors away from the visitors during COVID this year. But how are they trying to manage the scare zones during COVID? So the scare zones are actually, let, let's back up to Universal Studios Hollywood COVID protocol. They actually, everyone inside, if you're in the park, whether you're inside a building or outside one, you are required to have a mask on. Um, and as far as I know, tomorrow, uh, October 7th, if you're if you're listening later, a, they will actually be requiring vaccinations to enter the park. Um, so that's part of it. And all of the actors, the scare actors and monsters have masks on in some capacity as well. So everyone is masked. So it's, it's not as much a concern outside. And um, they have done some things in the mazes to kind of keep people a little bit away from some of the scare people where they're they're behind like they're banging on doors from on the other side they're kind of um i'll talk about it in hill house kind of what they did for that in a second so ways to kind of separate people a little bit so people aren't in their face but everyone does have a mask on which i think helps um and i know la county and california are doing really well where florida is florida (laughs) so um i felt safer there and and fine it's pretty they're pretty on top of uh, getting people to like wear a mask and a hundred percent, like when they're going through the mazes. And what yeah. other ones did you enjoy? Um, yeah. So the haunting of Hill house was, was another one that I liked. It was based off of haunting of Hill house on Netflix. And it, it wasn't really scary. I don't, I don't find many of these mazes scary just because of the, the way they do the scares where it's very jump scary. Like, You'll, you'll back up and you kind of get a little spooked when, when someone jumps in front of you, but it's not that bad. But even the Bride and Frankenstein and Hill House were a little low on the scares, even based on on that. But Hill House, I thought it, was, it did some interesting things where the the hidden ghosts were a big part of the, the show and the, the maze kind of plays into that where they have a lot of scrims set up. So it looks like you're walking through a normal hall and then they'll light them. There's like a ghost kind of walking around back there that will interact with you and they're not really trying to scare you. It more kind of creates like an atmosphere. Um, so there's some cool scenes where they they do that and there's one where you kind of walk through and it pops scrims on the whole room and it's like filled with they're just um, dummies or mannequins dressed up like the ghost but they it like they're filling the room. So it kind of I think encapsulates that kind of later scene in the show where the um, characters run into a lot of the ghosts. So I thought it was just a cool way to do it. And it felt like the, some of the actors were on point as far as the, the characters, um, the Olivia Crane ghosts are kind of like leading and beckoning you into the house more than really trying to scare you. And I just felt like I kind of captured some of that without necessarily being like a scary maze. So this might be like the most inside baseball thing that I'm going into here, but if you're listening to, the No Proscenium podcast, then, you know, you've come, you've come for Inside Baseball. Tell me if I'm wrong, because I've, I've heard it through the grapevine. I've never been myself. But Not Scary Farm, I know, previously did a lot of really cool scrim-heavy mazes. And those haven't been as common at Halloween Horror Nights. So is, is this a trend picking up? That's a good question. I have never actually been in Not Scary Farm either, which is a weird thing as like a Southern California resident my whole life. Um, but I've not been. I just, um, I normally stick to to Universal because it's a little closer to me. And then I was thinking of actually going for the first time this year. And then I think a few episodes back, Noah had a, a rant that just popped off about their mass protocols. So I've, I've declined to go this year. So I can't, I can't really speak to anything in, in Scary Farm's history or present day and how that might interact with uh, universal this year well the the same way on passover you're supposed to say next year in jerusalem i will say next year in not scary farm uh for both you me and and our whole immersive family <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll 
take a trip down there. Road trip. Yeah. So, um, any other questions, kind of about Horror Nights generally, and in the mazes they had? I don't. Those are the two big ones that I talked about in, in the rundown. And I think the those are most interesting from like a non-standard perspective. Uh, other than the fact that they're both based off, or the original source materials book, are books I find kind of yeah. subconsciously interesting. But no, I appreciate okay. the the rundown. Do you have anything on on Hill House on that? We want to keep it in book club corner for a second. No, I I actually have never read that one, so uh, I I'm failing my literary corner duties right now. Hey, right. so long as we're talking Hill House, Midnight Mass is pretty good on Netflix. <laughs> Same director have, did an awesome job. Check that out yet? That's it's on my Halloween plans, and I think he's gonna do um, House of Usher. I saw today. And it's he's exciting. also doing Christopher Pike's The Midnight Club. I know, so that's. That's going to be interesting for all you YA horror heads out there. All right. And then um, before we get way, way too far way off here, topic. let's let's stick with the horror. And uh, Blake, I think you had another show that you had up on the East Coast. Sure thing. So this, this is the show that I'm a lot happier about. And that was Unraveled by Spectra Pulse. So I went in knowing next to nothing about this show. It was a fringe experience for one person at a time. You are told that you're going to be meeting outside a bar in the Northern Liberties neighborhood of Philadelphia. And the only pre-show instruction you're given is to leave a voicemail voicemail for uh, Montgomery's investigative services, uh, where you are applying to be a detective's assistant. And so already you've got this kind of fun noir feel going in, you know, I was checked in by a show facilitator outside the bar and then told, masked, to pop in, find Mr. Montgomery. He brought a couple shots outside, gave me the brief overview of the case we were investigating, a suspicious suicide of allegedly a devout Christian. And so, huh, a little weird that she would have ended it, said, according to the people who knew her. And so... We're, we're going to be breaking into the apartment. That's her last known location. Gulp down this shot. Come on, let's go. And then we're, we're walking down the street. We're moving. And most of the show is a simulated break-in of a real apartment that they have set up kind of terrifyingly. You walk in alone after putting on gloves and shoe covers to not leave any prints. They're also to promote COVID safety smartly there is a red lensed flashlight projecting a huge shadowy cross onto the wall all the walls by the way have bible verses stapled all over them from floor to ceiling and so you're exploring this kind of terrifying like very seven like serial killer layer as you're starting to piece together the occult nature of this murder. And there is only ever one actor in the show. It always feels pretty COVID safe. They maintain their distance. It has almost no jump scares. And it's peppered with really fun little personalized touches. You know, I, I find an old typewriter. I pull out a sheet from it and it says... Blake, your path to enlightenment has just begun, which, you know, is a small touch. But when you're already on edge, it it makes the whole thing just that extra layer of spooky fun. Did it get more personal than that? Like, cause, like I'm just curious the depth. Like, was this like, did you submit any details in advance? And like, you're like, are you afraid of anything? And you write down spiders and then conveniently you walk into a room that's full of spiders. So they didn't do any of that hot reading or survey-based horror, however much I do enjoy that sometimes. But the and here I'm going to get to some slight gripes about the show. Um, you know, I had a really great time, and overall I consider it a super positive experience, one of the best sort of small-batch indie horror experiences that I've done. But the, the plot kind of goes nowhere. <laughs> 
it has a lot of themes of zealotry and enlightenment and, you know, the price of forbidden knowledge. There's a lot of Eden symbolism as you poke around, including a pretty spectacular scene in which the same way, you know, uh, some a drug dealer might be growing weed in their closet, they have one of the closets set up as this crazy plant-overloaded Garden of Eden set. Um but with that sort of like grungy more drug den aesthetic um but that never really goes anywhere the one plot thread i thought i was following for like 90 percent of the show was that this was a setup and i was being set up as the next victim of the cult who was the last investigator but no and spoiler alert here although the show has concluded um it turns out, no, the the victim was the detective's ex-wife, and he's not even really a detective. He's just a guy trying to figure out what happened to his beloved wife. And he's the next target of the cult. So I, I do wish that they had tied that in a little bit more and followed through on that level of personalization. But the mood of the thing... You know, the horrifying thrumming noises, the just slowly mounting sense of dread. It was set up as an investigative puzzler, which did add this level of personalization, because, you know, you did sort of have to rifle through things. I had to destroy multiple props that they must just have closets full of. Um, they had secret messages hidden inside of walnuts that I had to crack open with a nutcracker at one point. Like, it was wild in terms of that level of sort of personalized intimacy but as opposed to sort of plot-based emotional personalization nah not really on that this is kind of like maybe insider baseball too um you mentioned the breakable set pieces in your view in here as well how did they kind of lead you into that because that's one of those like no-nos in shows it's like, like don't break the sets and it always feels weird to kind of like when they're like no we want you to do it I and mean, it sounds like you're doing it a lot in this one well, there was there was a few little violations of protocol like that. At what you know, at the beginning of the show, we were also told not to cross any doors with caution tape. But after you know, we discovered some directions leading us to the caution taped bathroom, which I suppose was just being cordoned off for the appropriate emotional beat of the show. Then you know, you do have this detective character as a facilitator going, "Okay, you know, I think we got to go in. We don't have much of a choice." And they'll open the door for you. For the breakables, though, you know, you always can ask permission, but there are other times when it feels so totally natural. Uh, the, the two biggest breakables of the show were the aforementioned walnuts. Earlier in the show, I found a nutcracker. Then I found a terrifying little drawer filled with, like, gilded insects and four whole walnuts in tiny little bird's nests. I'm holding a nutcracker... I look to the detective, he shrugs, I shrug, I go to town. And the other one, you know, equally creative, there was a, a handprint on a pillow. And if you put your hand against it, you could feel something hard in the pillow. I go, hey, I found something hard. Detective goes, hey, open it up. So I, you know, rip it right open on the seams and find some more evidence in a little jewelry box inside of it. They, they manage to make it feel transgressive, but also cue you enough that you know the moments when you're supposed to hit those beats. I, I think it does this, you know, and this is also going insider baseball, but I think there is this really difficult balancing act. A lot of sort of one-on-one -on -one physical interactions have where you need to cue your audience in on how to be a good audience member, how not to break the story or the set, but how to go along with and best enable the story that they want to tell. You know, it, it's a when you're an immersive theater audience, you're engaging in a dance with the creator. You need to be a good dance partner. They're not going to just, you know, lead you through all the steps, but they also need to be your dance instructor by that same token. And I think they did a really good job of that here. Well, I think that is easier to to this whole concept of like when you're breaking things or by breaking things than breaking the experience. I think that is so much more manageable on that 
one-to-one level where you especially in a situation where you can clearly communicate or communication is highly encouraged uh, I, i've done a few one-on-one experiences and those weirdly also they maybe not weirdly they feel the most freeing in that sense of like you know if there's a pause in silence i can ask a question like you can kind of more rather than when you're in a group setting and there's that pause of silence and you're like can I ask a question? Can I interact with the performer? Or is this just like the the beat and stuff like that? You know, like you can ask a question if they don't respond, then okay, then you know, you know the relationship that's going on. And I feel like that kind of definitely helps influence things. And I think it really is something that I wish I saw more of during spooky season. I feel like that's where like you can really create like Blake to the point when you pull out the typewriter. That's like how you can create really intense, frightening, intimate moments when there's someone in the room who's who's watching you like a hawk uh, and can push you or manipulate you into going deeper into that terror. For sure. And, uh, you know, as I said in my review, I, I watched my back on my on my walk back to my car to head home it it put me in the spooky season mood that i had missed for so long and it it's really been kind of a great entryway gateway drug for another season of binging on horror content yeah it's just it's just good to have spooky season back missed it all last year speaking of horror content i want to hear about your horror musical comedy choose your own adventure patrick that sounded bananas and i am really curious yeah so um i recently experienced the leah project capital l e a uh and this is essentially a solo available anytime you could pause the podcast right now and go list uh, and go do this experience it's web-based and uh it's full of a self-guided like experience through recorded videos and prompts so basically you have this amazon like company called Ethico, who you know is just handling all of your needs or really just wants all your data like <laughs> some companies out there really do in the frightful world we live in uh speaking of spooky season and hey oh uh and they are ethico has recently uh is pioneering the latest version of leah 2.0 they have a very basic like hey leah order me groceries hey leah book my plane ticket back home for the holidays right but this new version is going to like be watching you and engaging with you and learning and like becoming more kind of self-aware but controlled but of course conveniently uh there's a beta tester who he agrees to do this and this guy is conveniently in a long-term relationship with his partner who i you know i think is out in la or something and he and her are not getting along the relationship is definitely strained and he consents to allowing Leah to like monitor his data and like try out this 2.0 version. But then something happens and during the upgrade, she becomes like self-aware to the fact that she begins to fall in love with this guy and she wants to do everything she can to make him happy. And maybe that's about crossing some ethical lines and, uh, pushing some personal boundaries that no human or AI should be doing. But what's really kind of fascinating about this is typically when Leah is conveying any kind of emotional moment in the pre-recorded videos, it's actually a musical. And it's like a music video with like text and imagery and she's singing along and it's very synthesized and engaging. And I mean, what makes this experience worth checking out for sure is the music like i i'm so desperate and can't wait for the music to be released like on spotify or something maybe a playlist when this uh, experience eventually you know uh, he 
they close it down and something like that. Like it's so good and it's so catchy and it really kept me engaged. And I looked forward to every moment Leah was going to take a moment and sing me her thoughts and feelings. So Ultron doing fatal attraction sounds like such an awesome concept already. <laughs> and now you're adding sort of a great synthy musical like concept album. I explain to me, Patrick, why this isn't the greatest show of all time. <laughs> well, well, and I think you totally nailed it. Like it's a kind of great spooky season experience in the sense of like fatal attraction, basic instinct, all of those kind of now sexist 80s thrillers that, uh, Mike, conveniently, Michael Douglas was in all of them. Coincidence? Why did, why did my mom show me all of those movies when I was like twelve? Uh, I don't know, but that's something for therapy corner uh, <laughs> later tonight, I guess. Um, be after we stop recording, after book club, after yeah, book club, after book club comes therapy club. Yeah. So, and it's in the the performances were in the pre-recorded sections were really good, and the text prompts were always kind of witty and had a very dark humor to it uh, with the themes. The issue is my, my role in the experience was very difficult to navigate or was so removed from the experience that if I made a choice, it was ignored. So really, if you, if you go to everything immersive and you click on go to the experience it takes you to a website, but this website is actually like an in-world website. It's not like, hey, this is the Leah project. This is who did it. If you want to start the experience, click here. Like you are immediately thrust into it, which is not necessarily a problem. Like, you know, it's not my, it's, uh, I've done, I've done in reviewed experiences before. I can catch my way up and I can figure out what's going on. Um, and the website requires a very careful read to log into the experience to start it at large. But then what happens is that because there was no onboarding, essentially, like it was not clear, like what the expectations were and things like that. I don't know whether I am a hacker trying to take Ethico down. I don't know if I'm just some random schmuck in this world who happened to log into the Ethico servers and am going through this, or I am myself having stumbled into it. My role and the agency I had was very unclear. And ultimately, reluctantly, I just decided to be myself because I wanted to stop thinking about it and I wanted to start enjoying the experience. Did, so, did okay. the show ever like clue you into your role through context? At any point during the show, or you were just kind of always, always lost. It 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 tries to because what happens is that it, it you know, like you're talking with your a uh, uh, manager at Ethico essentially, and then you're provided like three prompts, and it's kind of very um, Mass Effect Bioware in the sense that like it's like a brief summary, but then what you click on is very different. Like so, like hey. Um, you can you please enter the code to pull up leah's records and then what happens is uh the responses are yep no or lie uh and it's like so when you go yep it's like sure thing boss i'll get right on it or it, if it's like no it's like no i'm not doing it no way i hate this company or lie is like uh sure yeah i'll get right on doing that computer stuff right and so you could choose the typically all three options at any time. So you can also change your response, which I do like. I like the agency to maybe respond to certain things in a more positive way and then at other times respond more negatively. But then once again, that doesn't give me a sense of who I am. Like sometimes I'm just witty. Sometimes I'm being a jerk. Sometimes I'm being goofy, right? But it just comes out of nowhere. It's almost like, well, this is how I just randomly chose the response and did, it's, did you ever do you ever play eleanor because that was sometimes how the responses worked in that game where you like chose one thing and it was like wildly 
yes, offer yes. In, in tone from what you had selected? And to explain, because that's a really good example, Kevin, because like there's this video game from Rockstar Studios, which um, is the Grand Theft Auto people for all of those folks out there who might not know. And they made this like game set, you know, exactly as it sounds. And you're investigating crimes in like 1940s L.A. And you have to interrogate people and you get like a very brief uh, synopsis of what the question will be, but then the performance that plays out can be sometimes very different. And then next thing you knew, you blew an interrogation because you didn't realize your response was going to come that hard, you know, down on the person. Jesus, I wanted Shepard to just do a renegade option, not punch everyone in the room. <laughs> and that's the Mass Effect equivalent as well, for sure. Yeah. So like, uh, but to that point, like, at least in at least in both of those games to a certain point like there's a tutorial and you kind of make a decision or you get to know the character you're playing so whether you wish to be a goody two-shoes or a sadistic madman that's your choice but then with this one i didn't quite know so i quickly just like fell into the decisions i said of just being myself and just kind of responding with I typically selected like the goofy options where it's like enter the code and then the response is like just hit buttons. And then so my text prompt is just like a bunch of random characters because <laughs> I hit every button on the keyboard. Um, the other problem because of that is that I eventually gets to a point where you can admit to this ethic manager that you are not who they think you are. So I admit to the fact, hey, listen, I'm just some schmuck who just wandered in here onto your server by pure accident i don't know what's going on period and the response is like oh you're lying to me i know that's you i think you're just stressed or trying to blow off some steam and then the story continues so then on top of not knowing who i am most choices are addressed or maybe uh, acknowledged but then also are equally quickly dismissed in service of the narrative at large. And so then I become very passive and just wait for the videos to play and sit there. Do, do the choices you make or the answers you select have any effect on the, the outcome? Are there like multiple endings or is it all kind of like just the way you get to the ending? Uh, yeah, it's a slight spoiler in the sense um, it comes down to like the major of guess what it's a story about a rogue ai so at the end the choice is do you shut the rogue ai down or do you allow it to flourish and live its life and learn having maybe learned its lesson along the way right um and other other than that final choice i i don't think i influenced like forcing a decision or there was ever gonna be other decisions it was ultimately just leading to that very binary decision at the end that does have different endings and you know whether this character spoke to you and things like that was that for for me i chose not to let the uh ai i I decided to delete the ai for the sole fact that like it was very fatal attraction i'm like it wasn't like the ai was like I learned the lesson and I'm going to be better. And then it tried to correct its mistakes. Like it went, <laughs> it never learned any lessons. It only cooked more and more rabbits uh, in the, the pots for dinner. Uh, so I, that's the decision I made with it ultimately. Nice. Got to shut it down. Yeah. Shut <laughs> it down. But like, in, which congratulations was like... murderer. <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess I guess the horror of this experience of for spooky season is that I am the killer. Um, but like, it, it, but like in many ways, this is almost a, an experience about the music and about some of like the, the dark humor of it that had some interactivity and some engagement to help you know make some choices and flow things along. Uh, unfortunately. I just thought that component, they just didn't mesh. The, it was, the components didn't click together. And while I love the humor and the music, and I super recommend checking this experience out for it, when it comes to those prompts and when it comes to the ends, because also you make your choice at the end, and it's a very like, okay, this is what happened. Here are the credits. Like So even like my big moment of agency ultimately was like, 
great. Thanks for making a choice. Good night. Just make big decisions and uh, sign off. Yeah, you just make societal changes within an evil corporation, and then there you go. And then you just go home and live your life, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) No repercussions. Just go on. Um, How? I I don't actually have a question. Blake, do you have a question? (laughs) No, I, I mean, I kind of get a feel for this groovy, synthy messy but fun show yeah and i think that's a really great synopsis that it's it's yeah it's fun but messy and there is a lot of good here but you know unfortunately there's just some stuff that i personally didn't work or i think could be you know upgraded or you know the code could be fixed to make a little smoother experience to really make it worthwhile but you know it's available right now it's free you can do it whenever at your leisure you know those are also some trade-offs that maybe for those listening out there might make it worth it uh, worthwhile to check out blah, 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 blah. hey that's what i was trying to say phantom of the paradise one of my all-time favorite musicals is a train wreck so let's you know sometimes messes can be fun and it's a cool little online experience no reason not to check it out sounds like to me yeah i agree oh and it's free too did we mention that yes i did okay uh, thank you for thank you for paying attention to my comments there at the end paying very close attention okay <laughs> <laughs> so close i'm a very great host okay um I, like I kind of want to put you on the spot and make you talk about this Alice show, but I'm not sure if oh, the, for the uh, all right, all right. Just like uh, do like five minutes. I'm so curious about it, and I don't. Okay, I just want to hear about so, it. So <laughs> I was very excited about this show. You know, it it promised. This is Alice, not your child's Wonderland by Ego Po Repertory Theater. Um, I was very excited. the The description was sort of that you as a guest at sort of a debaucherous evening party um, will witness the story of Alice in Wonderland told through a lens of, you know, Alice trying to find retreat into childhood fantasy, but bits of this sort of surreal and debauched eyes wide shut adult world is leaking into that. And I'm like, okay, you're putting on this, you know, Marquis de Sade's Alice in Wonderland at the beautiful historic Glen Ford estate. And it's got, you know, immersive trappings. This, this sounds like it's going to be great. Well, in terms of being guests at the Littles party, uh, that all that amounted to is a quick line at the beginning of the show saying, Hey, your guests at the Littles party, which means you can walk to the bar while the show's going on. Please don't hesitate. Um, I did walk to the bar while the show was going on. The house cocktail was really sweet and really herbal and really hard to swallow. Um, <laughs> in, like terms of, in terms of the show itself, you know, the, the acting was pretty good. It was an obsessively faithful adaptation of Alice in Wonderland. You know, there's a, there's a reason most adaptations cut the whole scene with the mock turtle in between the croquet scene and the courtroom scene with the queen of hearts and that's because it completely kills the momentum guess what it still completely kills the momentum and beyond that by you know debauchery of the adult world leaking into her childhood wonderland by that we mean that the show is double cast in that it's just sort of all the adults at a party getting drunk and bullying a small child. All the whimsical nonsense of Wonderland sort of just turns into people yelling at and belittling a girl. And, you know, that is a take, but it's just not a very pleasant take to spend a lot of time with. And there were some ideas that landed for me. I don't want to sell this show completely short when, like, I... I liked some of the coming of age through lines, you know, Alice's constant physical and bodily changes, like I mentioned in the review, were this nice sort of through line of Alice trying to grapple with her adolescence between this adult world invading her childhood fantasy world. And, you know, we you talk about the nonsense that you engage with 
in terms of the arbitrary rules of Wonderland. Well, maybe there is a take there in the ways that, you know, well, I'm correct because I'm the adult. I'm correct because I say so. Kind of neatly mirrors that. But again, there's nothing really that you necessarily can go from. There's not a lot of places to go from there in this show. Because as I was reading that paragraph in your review, like, I knew you were talking about this Alice show, but it almost perfectly describes Then She Fell, uh, too, in some ways. And it deals with that liminality and, like, that kind of, like, growing up, are you big, are you small, are you an adult, are you a kid? And so I, I think it was just kind of, like, that's what I wanted to talk to you about is because it, it seemed like it was, like, hitting on those same concepts, but obviously well, it's not. I, I don't want to say they bit off more than they can chew, but Then She Fell works because it's done by an incredibly incredibly good theatrical team that's able to really use intimacy and interactive design to make that very personal story feel very personal to the cast doing this in sort of very broad alternatingly you know kind of maudlin depictions of abuse mixed with kind of flat feeling slapstick that doesn't really do those themes justice and it doesn't give those themes the room to breathe that then she fell gives those themes and i guess the other thing i'd say about then she fell in contrast to this and you know forgive me i i don't mean to beat a dead horse or be cruel here but then she fell for really is kind of the abject misery of that show you know i i always joke that they they used to give you a cup of tea and some space in the last scene just so that you could have a good cry before you left they do everything they can to make that experience incredibly pleasant to the senses it's gorgeous dancing everything smells nice it's nicely lit there's beautiful quiet music there's moments of peace and joy amid the sadness everyone's handing you delicious cocktails in your medicine cups but here everything is shrill and loud and abrasive and i i get that that's kind of what they're going for in terms of the way this wonderland feels to this alice but that's not a very nice space to spend some so much time in and when you're dealing with themes that require a lot of vulnerability on the part of the audience to connect with because these are not easy themes to connect with emotionally you know perhaps they're universal emotions and themes but they're not things that a lot of people like to engage with on a daily basis. That takes the creation of trust and breaking down emotional barriers. And the thing that really got me about this show is that I didn't feel like those barriers were being brought down in the slightest. I felt my barriers going way up because it was just everyone being a loud, mean bully. And and so, you know, not to rant, but it's just... It just did not land well, in the slightest. And I think, uh, you know, having not seen Then She Fell, and I also, you know, like, I I, don't, I, I have not seen it. I, Kevin, I don't know if you ever made it out there. I, I have. Okay. So yeah, I, I should say, too, is that it's it's really not fair to compare any, any show to Then She Fell. Well, like that's, that. cause that's the thing, because I think, like, so maybe to kind of, on this note, it's just like, you know, th- like they had years, then she fell, has years and years and years of experience. And in looking at this exper- uh, experience that you're talking about, Blake, very briefly, it's like they rented a space, they, uh, and it's this Glenn Ford place again, which is where you saw something else, right? Like this massive, like. I saw the Midsummer Night Stream thing. Yeah, like, there so, like, I'm, and I'm sure there's like all sorts of like rental concerns, like, don't do this don't go there if you're gonna be on the grounds you know like it's almost like a golf course like I, so i i wonder how much is this also like the time and the space of it too unfortunately maybe right i would say that except that you know as you said i have seen a show there that did kind of it had a lot more flexibility i don't think glenn ford is that restrictive that same company altera is putting on a 
sort of sleep no more inspired promenade performance, the poison garden that I'm attending at the end of the month. And, and even if that was the case, and you know, I'm, I'm not trying to compare them to then she fell because that isn't fair to anyone. Then she fell is quite possibly the best immersive show I've ever seen. What I might instead compare it to is a different production of Midsummer Night's Dream. I recently saw and reviewed lovers and madmen over at the Taylor Arboretum outside of Philadelphia. That is a show that had very light immersive components. Similarly, you know, we were instructed that we were members of Duke Theseus's wedding party. And similarly, it was an outdoor production of mostly traditionally staged scenes. However, you know, a few creative elements, integrating some promenade sections, having small more interactive interlude scenes as you walk from sort of venue to venue within this dark forest that you, along with the Athenian lovers, are getting hopelessly lost in. They, for also a fairly young theater company with fairly limited resources and working within the confines of the venue that they were allowed, were able to craft something that felt really special and really innovative. I think what really doomed Alice at the end of the day is a failure of concept and a failure of consideration for the audience and the way that they're engaging with the work. That, you know, even traditional theater has to think pretty strongly about where their audience is coming in from and what emotional journey they're going to be taken on. And... Alice uh, trying to introduce immersive elements um, in even however lightly they did, that goes doubly. And I feel like there was a real distinct break in that emotional journey that just didn't allow the audience to connect with the piece. And I think that's something we come back to a lot in this show, right? It's like kind of how did they, was it constructed? Did they know what they were trying to do and did they kind of, make that land it seems like it was kind of mixed up here and i think it it speaks to probably the difficulty of of using even these same themes from alice that worked so well and then she fell and like translating here it's played in a very strange way or even like with the midsummer night's dream show you're talking about like it, that consideration is so important to especially immersive because like it's it's much easier to feel a show going off the rails or not even going off the rails just kind of going going sideways a little bit when you're like in the middle of it you know, it's it's very funny, you know, not to go all Marshall McLuhan, but, you know, the medium is the message here. It's it's structurally limited by the chosen structure of this show in terms of whether or not those themes will work. Those themes, what you seem to be saying, and I personally agree with, are forbidden by the chosen structure of the piece. And that's that's kind of a pretty interesting conundrum to be stuck in. I don't want to end negatively. Uh, everyone, uh, go see go see stuff by Third Rail. Then she fell was great. Uh, <laughs> Spectre Pulse was fantastic. Uh, I really liked Unravel. Uh, well, no, no. I think I think we can end on a, on a different note. We can. I think it's it's immersive theater is hard to put together, even if something you have something that kind of like misses like that, or you have something like the Leah project that. That does a lot of things right. It's hard to hard to get something that lands one hundred percent correctly, just because immersive. I mean, theater in general and immersive theater, like you said, is is doubly hard. I think to kind of get get right. There's and a lot I that think, goes into it, and yeah, and I I think to be once again, I think we can all admit, like even when one could say they did everything right, it's a hundred percent perfect there are still flaws to be found. There are still things that could, um, whether it's nitpicking or it's, you know, like, okay, this one moment out of a two hour experience didn't land. Oh, well, so be it. That happens, right? Like that's just part of the process and things like that. And sometimes the pendulum swings one way to overshadow. Like it's, so it's like, you know, to be binary about it. it's like good and bad the pendulum swings back and forth but it's never gonna get typically all the way to one or the other you know like intention and thought will save 
even the maybe the quote most doomed things where then you know as emotionally engaging and wonderful this thing is you might realize later on wait a minute was that moment ever earned in that big thing right like, and it's just all a spectrum and it's sometimes whether we've self-appointed ourselves to a certain degree like trying to like decide where on the pendulum some of these experiences stop and it's you know it's all subjective in the words of the inevitable some like it hot immersive that twenty dollars says they put on at the coronado in san diego within the next decade nobody's perfect (laughs) and uh that's where we'll end um does anyone have any last thoughts on on pick of the week or we want to wrap it up and say goodbye I think I'm I think I'm ready to say goodnight, Gracie. All right. Uh, we'll catch you all in the podcast feed and in Discord next week. Stay tuned for the regular podcast to find out what makes Pick of the Week. On behalf of Patrick and Blake, bye. So long, y'all. <laughs>